What do you do when you have a Christian brother and sister who loves the Lord, loves the church, is growing in their faith, but they have a completely different value concerning an issue that might not be biblical, but is definitely critical? How do you live in harmony with that person? That's what we're talking about today on The Deep Dive. Good evening, everybody. My name is Tim, and welcome to The Deep Dive on Tim Hatch Live. And I'm so glad that you're here. Season 5, episode 27. That's that's what we're talking about. We're talking about those, those non-salvific, those non-essential issues of the Christian's walk. There are gray areas in the church, am I right? There are gray areas in life, whether or not we should do them. And you might have a good friend who completely disagrees with you. Can you live in harmony with that person? I think you can, but there are some strategic principles, some biblical principles that you need to apply to your life. Hey, do me a favor. At the very least, would you consider uh, liking the video, subscribing, and sharing the video wherever you are social media-wise? So let's pray. We'll get into Romans chapter 14. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to hear your word and to study it. And I pray that my words are what you want them to be, that our ears hear you and our hearts receive you and our souls are shaped by you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first off, right off the top, I want to just mention a shout out to a subscriber, Mehdi, who made this shirt for me based on our teaching through the book of Romans. Remember Romans 9 grafted in, we were talking about that. That's who we are, Gentile believers. And thank you, Mehdi, for your gift. I appreciate it. I've got another gift over here from Steve Fowler and another subscriber is the Babylon Bee's Guide to Wokeness, a fantastic book. I've been reading it. It's on the shelf back there. Anyway, let's get into this topic. It's a really important topic. How do Christians handle the gray areas? Believe it or not, the Bible does not address every issue in modern day American life. It really doesn't, at least not directly, but indirectly. The Bible does have principles for us to help us understand the complicated gray areas of life. Years ago, I did a talk on Romans 14 with youth ministry, with my youth ministry at the time. The kids loved this talk. I mean, they ate it up because when it comes to teens, they're always like, was this wrong or is that sin? And they're always wondering what they can do and what they can't do. And we talked about a whole series of messages on the Christian's gray areas. And before we answer that, like that issue of how Christians are to regard gray areas, here's a better way to ask the question, how Christians are to act when they disagree over gray areas. Like, how are we supposed to act? I don't know if there's supposed to be a question mark at the end of that sentence, but otherwise, how are we supposed to act when there are, are, are disagreements and genuine disagreements about gray areas? You say, well, what are you talking about? What are the gray areas? Okay, I wanna just throw a few, there's far more. Um, drinking alcohol, entertainment choices. Some people can't watch R-rated movies. Some people only watch G-rated movies. Some people don't watch anything at all. Uh, dancing, believe it or not, is a gray area. Maybe for my parents' generation, not so much mine and the younger generations. Musical styles, like some people believe that certain music is just sinful no matter what it says. And some people believe that certain words in music is sinful. How about this one? How I educate my child, homeschool, public school, private school, charter school, 
whatever, you know, and then we can get into should I vote Democrat or Republican? Should I vote at all? Should I pay taxes or not? Okay, that's not a gray area. I tried to slip it in, but it's not. Then COVID-19, the mask mandates, the um, public gathering mandates around gathering as the church. Should we obey government? Should we obey God? That might have been a gray area for a little while, right? Until, you know, we, we saw the, the science becoming fake. Anyway. Then vaccine mandates. What do I do? I need to keep my job. Do I take the vaccine? Do I not take the vaccine? All kinds of gray areas. And we've been through such a contentious season in in our history over these last three years that I think that this is a very apropos talk. So with that in mind, let's get into what it meant. If you've got your Bible open to Romans chapter 14, I want to show you what I see on my Bible uh, software right above the text, and here it is on the screen now. You'll see that this this lettering right here above the number 14. Do not pass judgment on one another. Just quick tip, whenever you see that lettering, the words above the chapters or between little sections of the chapters, like this one, please remember that that's not biblical text. That is what a Bible publisher decided to say that's what this section is about. And I think that my Bible software gets it wrong here because I don't think that this is all about not passing judgment on one another. The world loves this idea of thou shalt not judge. In fact, we, the world, secular world, exchanged John 3, 16 for Matthew 7, verse 1 as their favorite verse, the favorite verse of non-Christians. Used to be God so loved the world, right? Oh, God loves the world. Now it's Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. And they only take those three words and they say, don't judge me. Like, don't ever judge me. Don't, don't you dare tell me I'm sinful. Don't you dare, you know, question my character or actions. I have the right to do what I want. Only God can judge me and all these kind of things. Well, is that true? Like, should we never pass judgment on anything and anyone? Of course not. Of course not. The Bible itself is passing judgment on activities left, right, and center. Paul the Apostle writes these letters to the church because he's judging where they're out of bounds scripturally in and in harmony with each other. So there is a call to judge. Even Jesus said, judge by a right judgment in the book of John. We've got to uh, test the spirits. That's also another form of judgment. That's 1 John 3, verse 1. There is a absolute need for us to judge. I mean, we don't judge. Then everybody can just go around and shoot each other. It's, you know, it's the purge all the time, right? Just do whatever you want. Nobody cares. But we must have a judgment of sin and righteousness. At the same time, we have to regard each other for what the Bible says we are, brothers and sisters in Christ, who may disagree and genuinely disagree about issues that, while not necessarily mentioned in the Bible, definitely should, uh, definitely can cause some disagreement and disfellowship. And I've seen too many people walk away from each other in Christ when they shouldn't just because they have a different view on something that is debatable. So let's get into the text. Romans chapter 14, verse 1, it says this. As for the one who is weak in faith. Now, Paul's going to make some, uh, some nomenclature here. First, he's going to mention those who are weak in faith. First group, those who are weak in faith. And so obviously, if he's talking about the people who are weak in faith, and then he says, welcome him in third person. Well, guess who he's talking to? Those who are strong in faith. So welcome. If you are, if you see a brother who is weak in faith, welcome him or her, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
Now he gives us a little bit more insight into who he's talking about. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person, okay, so let's tie weak up here to weak down here. This is what the weak person is about. So when we say, you know, weak in faith, we're thinking, oh, people who are struggling with doubts and people who are struggling with their faith. No, that's not, that's not what, that's, there's a place for that in the Bible. That's not this context. Back to the text. So the weak person eats only vegetables. Hmm? What? They're vegetarians? No. Hold on. Hold that thought. Verse three, let, let not the one who eats, well, eats what? Eats more than vegetables. Despise the one who abstains and eats only vegetables. And let not the one who abstains, that is this weak person, pass judgment on the one who eats, that is who eats meat beyond vegetables, right? For God has welcomed him. Okay, this is the, Paul is drawing the boundary lines about the contextual argument that he's entering into with the book, with the church in Rome. So first type of believer, weak believer. Second type of believer, strong believer. Now, what you have got to understand is that who you think is weak might actually be the strong person here, and who you think is strong might actually be the weak person here. So let me unpack who these people are. The weak faith believers in the church in Rome did not eat meat because it wasn't kosher, which means they were probably Jews, which, which means that they were weak because that though Christ's finished work on the cross uh, annulled the laws pertaining to diet. So every bacon eater can say amen for Jesus, right? So that now the pig is a clean animal. The, 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 um, all the other animals that the Old Testament, I can't even name another one. I just know pig is big. Anyway, I, all the other animals that were not clean under the Old Covenant, that's, that's, that was pointing to something. That was teaching the Jews about cleanliness and uncleanliness. It was also applying to a spiritual principle about what is good for you and what is not good for you. Jesus comes. Remember, Peter is on the roof of uh, Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. He gets a vision, the vision of the sheet laid down with all the unclean animals. And God says to him, get up, kill a Peter and eat. He says, Lord, I've never done that. I've never eaten things that I'm not supposed to according to the law. God says, don't call what is what I've made clean, unclean. And it was another spiritual principle that Jesus was showing to Peter saying, you got to start welcoming Gentiles into the church because you're not saved through being Jewish. You're saved through being a believer in Christ, right? So then he goes to Cornelius's house because of that vision that was revealed to him three times on Simon's roof. He goes to Cornelius. He presents the gospel. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. And this Italian regiment, regiment leader, Cornelius, with all of his household are suddenly Christians. And Peter is becoming instrumental to welcome those who were not Gentile, who were not Jews into the church, which was largely Gentile at that time. So the church's great struggle for the first 10 to 15 years was how do Jews relate to non-Jewish believers? Because we're now all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, that's the that's the the lion's share of the book of Romans chapter. Uh, I mean, uh, the book of Ephesians one to three. How do we regard non-believe um, Jewish believers and Gentile believers as one body? Because we are made one through faith in Christ. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law to make us all one. Now, now some Jews. In the book of Romans, in the time that Paul's writing these words, had a hard time getting over that hurdle. So they didn't understand how they could, well, they maybe they could understand they could welcome Jewish, um, non-Jewish believers, but they didn't understand how they could then practice non-Jewish diets among these Gentile believers. And you have to kind of say that I get that. I understand that. When Christ saves someone, he saves them from a lifestyle that 
might not have applied to you. So here's the fundamental lesson that Paul's trying to communicate. Have a little grace for the people who were saved from a different space. Oh, that rhymes. Have a little grace for a, a new believer or a different kind of believer who was saved from a different kind of space. They, in other words, they weren't raised like you. They, weren't, they, they didn't think like you. They didn't live like you before they were believers. Now you're in this new covenantal relationship with, with them through Jesus Christ, and, and you come from different walks of life, and, and they're bringing into their new life hang-ups, or avoidances, or maybe even extra biblical legalisms that they need some time, some grace to either get over or maybe live with until they die, and you don't need to pick a fight with them over that, all right? Does that make sense? Let me know in the comments if I'm making sense. Anyway, Paul's first admonition here is, this is important, welcome them. In other words, do whatever it takes to create fellowship, but don't welcome them to quarrel over opinions. In the, new, in the New International Version, the word opinions is translated disputable matters. Don't quarrel over disputable matters. What a thought. Oh, and by the way, when you get together in the church, don't look for arguments over disputable matters. There are people that do this all the time. When I get into the community with, with Christians, it's amazing how often, because they hear me preach a lot, so they want to just kind of like pick a bone with me about some disputable matter. And I'm like, look, man, you're welcome to your opinion. Here's what I hope. Here's what I hope. And this is always my response. I hope that your opinion about that issue, which I might not agree with, helps you love the Lord and love your neighbor. We're going to disagree. You're not going to win me. I'm not going to win you because you know what? I'm sure you've got reasons for why you believe it's not biblical or, or there's questions in the text as to whether you're right or I'm wrong or, or, or I'm right or you're wrong. Or I said that wrong, but you get it. Whether you're right or whether I'm right. There's questions in the text. It's vague enough in the text to understand that either of us could be right. So this is a disputable matter. And all I'm saying is let's not argue. Let's hope that your opinion on that disputable matter brings you closer to Christ. And my opinion, which is different than yours on that disputable matter, brings me closer to Christ. Amen? Like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be like the best way to like relate to one another? I hope that how you believe about this draws you closer to Christ. I, I mean, just, I think that's the way to go. And Paul's talking to people who avoid meat because they come from a Jewish background because the meats probably in the Roman market in those days were largely unkosher, probably a lot of pig, probably a lot of, I don't know, ostrich, I don't know, the other unclean animals. There's a ton of them. And the Romans had no problem eating it. And the Roman converts, the Gentile converts had no problem eating it. <clears throat> but the Jews were like, no, I can't, I can't. Because, because I, I come from this long history of Jewish dietary regulations laid down in the law. And, and here's the deal. They, were, might, they might even have said, look, I know that Jesus took this law down. I know that Jesus annihilated the Old Testament uh, civil kind of regulations over Israel. I get it, or sacramental regulations. But I'm still struggling to eat something that I was literally raised not to eat. So, you know what I'm saying? Have a little grace for the people who were saved from a different space. Man, I should, like, tweet that before someone else takes credit for it. <laughs> so... He says this in verse 3b. Um, let's go to verse 3b. Where are we? 
let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Okay, so first, to you Christians who don't have that conviction, to you Gentile Christians who don't have that conviction over that unclean food, don't, don't force, don't force them, don't hate them. Sorry, he actually says don't despise. So don't hate them who have different convictions than you. And then he talks to the, to the people with the convictions. Let the one who abstains not pass judgment. Don't be condescending to people who don't share your convictions. And wouldn't it be nice in the church if we just did that? Like, let, let's, let's try to just love one another and understand that we're all going to be different. Here's the funny thing about Christians. We get, we get worked up over the smallest little issue between each other. And, and it's just a rule of thumb concerning personal relationships. No matter who you are in relationship with you with, there's no person on the planet that agrees with you about everything. And eventually, the closer that you get, eventually you're going to find there's some area of disagreement. And you can either kill the relationship based on that disagreement or you can work through the relationship with that disagreement. Like I say this to my church humorously. I say, I understand that some of you don't agree with me about vax mandates and mask mandates. I understand that. Hey, there are thoughts in my head that I don't even agree with. <laughs> like, I don't even agree with myself sometimes. And I mean that. Do you understand? I've gone back and forth about certain convictions over the course of my life. It's, it's okay. As long as it's disputable. Like it's an opinion. It's not black and white. I can't go back and forth over the atonement work of Christ, the doctrine of atonement. I can't go back and forth over salvation by grace through faith. I can't go back and forth over Jesus Christ is the divine son of God conserved, conceived in the virgin of the Virgin Mary, of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and never sinned. I can't go back and forth on those convictions because those are essential. But I can't go back and forth on, you know, musical choices, taste and entertainment, how people raise their children, how to vote, you know, all those kind of things. And everybody, if you give yourself long enough in the, in the Christian faith, you're going to go back and forth even in your own opinions from your past. Here's the last thing I want to write down on uh, just verses 1 to 3, and then we'll move on. Be careful not to assume that what offends you automatically offends God. Ooh, amen. Be careful not to assume that. So many people make that assumption and then pass that assumption on to everyone else. Okay, so to that end, Paul then goes to verse 4 and he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Two key phrases here. Who do you think you are to be the judge over God's servant? The word another here is referring to God. That person that you are judging or you are condemning or you are forcing to have your convictions, that person is Christ's servant, not yours. Now, I know we're supposed to serve each other, but we're serving Christ as we serve one another. Ultimately, we are all responsible to Christ. And that's what he says here in verse 4. He says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. The master, of course, is Christ. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. By the way, just love that little last line. The Lord is able to make us stand. No matter what convictions we might not have that we should have or what convictions that we don't have that, I'm sorry, that we do have that we may not need, good news Christ is making us stand. Christ is still in charge of our salvation. This is really good news for the person who thinks, do I have all the right beliefs about the faith? Maybe I'm not thinking right about the faith. Okay, maybe you're not. In fact, I'm going to tell you, you're probably not. You're probably not thinking right about a couple things. 
But can I tell you, the good news is that the Lord is able to make you stand in the faith regarding your ill-conceived notions and theological conclusions right now. And if you give yourself enough time, eventually the Lord will show you what's right and lead you to what's right, and you will grow, and hopefully you'll become what? Less judgmental. Yeah? Yeah, that's the, that's the point here. Let's do less judging, and let's do more nudging. Another tweetable phrase. Let's do less judging. Let's do more nudging. What do I mean by that? Don't sit there and point and point and point at everybody's life and the, how they're out of line with you, but rather let's nudge people and encourage each other to grow in Christ, to love the Lord and love their neighbor as they love themselves. Okay, let's get back now into the nitty gritty of the verse of the passage in verse five. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Okay, so when he talks about these one days, now we know, now we know for sure he's talking about Jewish believers because the Jewish law had special holy days, special holy feast weeks, right? The Pentecost feast, the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the temple, uh, uh, tabernacles and booths and trumpets, all those feasts. Well, some, the Jews who came out of that or were raised in that, well, they still practiced those days. The Gentiles who had no affinity or no association with that before Christ, they didn't give a rip about the Feast of Pentecost, okay? Because the feasts themselves were just pointing to the realities of the spiritual life that Christ came to offer us, right? So there, this is the, this is the division in the church in Rome. Now you see why. Paul has been unpacking the gospel for the first 11 chapters of the book. Then getting, to the then getting to the implications from Romans chapter 12 onward because there were deep divisions in the first century church, okay? So lean in moment number one for today. Even in the first century church that Paul started, there were deep divisions. So that means that your church with its divisions might just be normal. <gasps> who thought? Who would have thought? Like your small group where not everybody agrees about everything might be normal. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, this is okay. It's okay for di disagreement on disputable matters, okay? So he goes, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, just live your convictions out. Live your convictions out or live your freedom out. Verse six, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks uh, to, the, to God. Okay, so let's talk about this. At the end of the day, this person is seeking to live according to their own convictions in honor of the Lord. Can you at least give that person the benefit of the doubt that what they are trying to do is live righteously before God as their convictions allow them to? So, so stop forcing your convictions on them. Don't argue back and forth. Don't get into these bickering, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, theological you know, arguments. And people do this. No matter how often we hear we shouldn't do this, we still do it. <laughs> now, let's talk about the spectrum of immature and mature believer, because that's who he's talking about. That's who he's talking to. The immature believer is really a believer that has to abstain from questionable matters. Like they could drink alcohol, because the Bible says that alcohol is both good and bad. It can be bad, it can be good. But the immature, you know, young believer says, no, it's all bad. I have to abstain. The mature believer has liberty about that because he knows that the fruit of the vine is blessed if we give God the first fruits of our offering. The, 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 the mature believer knows that Jesus turned water into wine and not grape juice, right? You know, high C didn't come around until the 20th century, right? So anyway, you know, there's, there's maturity and immaturity 
of a, uh, there's a spectrum of maturity and immaturity and, and don't mature liberal believers, please don't look down on these people and immature abstinence believers, please do not judge or force your uh, convictions on the other people, the mature believers. Okay. So verse seven, he says this. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whatever, or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. Okay, now, 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 here's what Paul does, and I love this because Paul does this. He zooms out. He takes the he takes the zoom camera lens, and he just kind of twists it back. Right, we're going wide angle now. If we live or die, like that's wide angle. You live or die, you do both to the Lord. So just think about this. Your whole life is the Lord's. And that's why Christ died, because he's the Lord of the dead and the living. That's what he's saying here in verse 9. He's the, he's the Lord of both the dead and the living. And, and this also applies to our spiritual condition in Christ Jesus, that when we become Christians, we die to self. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Now let's move on into verse 10. Why? Now he's almost like at a little bit of a frustration level here. Why, why do you do this? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise the brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Like this is good reminder right here. This is a great reminder. God's going to judge them. You don't have to judge them. God will take into account how they practice their faith. And you don't need to do that. Again, let's be nudges, not judges. So he says this, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, as is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We have a personal responsibility to live according to God's commandments with the convictions that we have and or without the convictions that we have on disputable matters. Verse 13, let's continue. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Like, stop it. That's what he's basically saying. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, this stumbling block, we're going to revi- he's going to revisit that in just a moment. So, in this, essentially, you've got to stop getting into arguments, getting into debates, into debates with people that you should be partnering with in the cause of the gospel with people who you should be partnering with in the cause of Christian fellowship. Can I restrict my mouth from instigating arguments with someone who shares a different conviction than I do? Because ultimately, this person's faith in Christ matters more than me being right. Ultimately, this person's connection to Christ matters more than me looking smart. Hello. So this is Paul's appeal to the Roman church. He is almost begging them at this point. Let's stop doing this. So it was happening in the first century church in Rome. It happens in every church since, and it's okay if it happens, but at some point it's going to stop. We're going to tear each other apart. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For your brother is grieved by what you eat. You are no longer, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here is the law of conscience. Here's what he's saying. There's a law of conscience. If you can't handle it, don't do it. And secondly, if your brother can't handle it and you're around your brother, also then don't do it. Like that's the law of conscience. And then this verse, verse 16, which is a kind of an interesting phrase that he kind of throws right here in the middle. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Well, what is the thing that he's talking about when it comes to the thing that you regard as good? It's the liberty issue for the mature Christians. It's whatever they think is fine. Drinking alcohol or um, uh, we'll get into some others. You know, listening to secular music or watching a movie that might be questionable to some Christians. You know, that's good to you. Don't let it be spoken of as evil by, by flaunting your freedom to do it in front of a Christian who has sincere convictions about that because they were saved from another space. Got it? Verse 18, we're almost through this what it meant section. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I love this, these two verses so much because what he's saying is if you can do this, if you can consider your brother with regards to your freedom or convictions, you're actually, you're actually acceptable to God. And outsiders will think well of you if you can do this. This is so cool. If you guys as Christians could just put aside those debatable actions and love each other through them and agree to disagree, but love each other sincerely, the world's going to look and say, how does this vote, this Republican voter and this Democrat voter go to the same church? I don't understand. How is that possible? How is that possible? Oh, they both love Jesus. They both love Jesus. By the way, I know that some of you right now, that's just a trigger right there because some of you know, I understand that there are certain issues on, 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 on political issues that we as Christians must agree on. And I've t- said that to you on this show. I've said, this to you, said that to you on this channel. Like pro-life has to be, a, it is a Christian viewpoint, right? Anyway, but when, when there's debatable issues beyond that real essential one, well, okay, they can disagree on those things, but they can still come face the front sing the same songs and love the word of God and and grow in Christ Jesus. And when people see that, man, I'll tell you, that sends a loud and clear message that Jesus Christ can really change people's hearts and bring them together. Okay, verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Do not destroy. Well, what's the work of God here? The work of God here is that friend, that fellowship, that community that you have with Christians. Are you, are you picking up a theme so far in Romans 14? The theme that I'm picking up is that Paul says, basically, Christian community is so important. You need Christian friends so much that if you let food or days of the week or certain convictions take you away from them, man, that is big time. That is really bad for you, right? So going on, everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So again, back to the same argument that we've already been making. Like, don't do the thing in front of someone else when it's a sincere conviction to them. Let me put this up in the New Living Translation because I like this translation better for these verses. It says this. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another brother to stumble. You may believe there is nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. So let's just pick up this last phrase because he's saying 
you know, if you have liberty in that issue and the, and your brother doesn't, you don't need to change your convictions because they are convicted about it. Just be happy about it and then don't do it in front of them. Okay? Powerful, powerful stuff. All centered on this issue of let's stick together. And let's stick together over the essentials and not divide over the debatables. So, verse 22, and then the ESV now. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, this is important. This is important. Verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. What is he saying? Condemned before God? No, he's talking about internally. He's He's got this conviction and now he's breaking his conviction because some more mature believer doesn't have the conviction so he's thinking okay let me change but then i still feel terrible if i do it paul says look your faith is not there yet and if that's where your faith is stay there because if it doesn't proceed from faith if it doesn't proceed from a sense of i'm right with god then then it's going to become a sinful issue to you it's going to it might in fact lead to worse things for instance Let's throw out a hypothetical. One Christian is saved from religiosity and they come to Christ. And then another person is saved from alcoholism and they come to Christ. And they both go to the same church and they both go to the same small group. Now the person saved from religiosity, no problem with alcohol. So he can have a beer. He can have a beer uh, at dinner when they go out, right? And this person, when he drinks the beer, this person says, yikes, but maybe... Maybe I need to loosen up about that. Yeah, but you were safe from alcoholism. And then so he starts to loosen up. And before you know it, he's having a beer. And then because he had that, that different space background, now he's having two beers, three beers, four beers. And this person who did not consider the weakness of his brother has now just led him into a place where he is going to potentially fall off the wagon, honestly, to, to put it in, you know, alcoholic anonymous terms. And we've got to be careful about that. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, my brother's connection to Christ is more important than my personal convictions. Amen? Let's talk about what it means. So Paul has been talking about weak believers and strong believers, and he's also been talking about the fact that Christians are going to have disagreements about non-essential or debatable issues. I want to tell you a story. In the 1800s, the Nothing changes with the church. So this was an issue in the first century. It's an issue in the 21st century. It was an issue in the 19th century. In the 1800s, two of the most famous Christians, pastors in the Victorian era in England were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. They were powerful preachers, friends, and they were partners. They even exchanged pulpits on occasion. But then they found out things about each other. Like, like I said, when you get to know someone, you're going to eventually find something that you disagree with, no matter how closely you think you align. Spurgeon found out that Parker attended the theater and thought it was sinful. Parker found out that Spurgeon smoked cigars and drank alcohol. And Parker thought that was evil. This eventually kind of put a strain in their relationship. It got into the papers and it divided Christians against each other in the country of Britain. And the, and the church kind of like got into their separate camps and started throwing sling, starting slinging mud at each other. Rather than having grace for each other's space, they created conflict for non-believers to witness. It was, it was a bad time. Then another time, uh, Charles Spurgeon had D.L. Moody from America. Uh, he had him come and speak in his pulpit in Britain. Well, Moody 
who had a real hard time with Spurgeon drinking alcohol and smoking cigars, got up and preached about the evils of tobacco and why Christians must not smoke. And uh, so Spurgeon took it as an insult that Moody took the opportunity of being a guest in his pulpit to condemn himself, to condemn Spurgeon for violating an issue of personal conscience. And so after Moody preached, Spurgeon got up to the pulpit and said, Mr. Moody, I'll put down my cigar when you put down your fork. Because Moody was overweight. Um, I can only imagine how that service ended. Like, all right, now if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to ask you to give your life to Jesus. Now that we've totally insulted each other, right? Here's the question. Who was right? Who was right? They were probably both wrong. Like they shouldn't have passed judgment on debatable matters. Some of you can't even imagine drinking alcohol. Did you know that some of the greatest revival preachers drank alcohol? John Wesley. He drank alcohol. But interestingly enough, John Wesley was um, totally against drinking tea, which is where we get the term teetotaler from. John Wesley, the revivalist preacher, the Anglican minister who basically set America on fire uh, in the 1800s, late 1700s, was a teetotaler because he didn't drink tea, but he did drink beer. His brother, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, most of his hymns we still sing today, many of his hymns, not most, he drank beer. George Whitfield also drank beer. Martin Luther, the great reformer, not only drank beer, he brewed it himself. He famously said, quote, whoever drinks beer is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer, end quote. Martin Luther. <laughs> so these, these are the common issues in every generation of debatable matters that we need to stop arguing about. We need to stop quarreling over. Two believers, weak and strong. So let's talk about weak believers. There are convictions over non-essentials, and this is regarding a personal issue. The strong believer, they have liberty over non-essentials, and it's liberty because there's a theological issue. They know, like in Peter's day, Peter knew theologically that Jesus had eliminated, had torn down that wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and now that, that those dietary restrictions, that was annulled at the cross. So theologically, Peter was right, but his Jewish friends had a personal issue about it. And sometimes our personal issues get conflated with theological issues, and we need to be careful about that. A lot of Christians do that all the time. They make their personal issues a theological issue. Again, make sure that what offends you, you don't assume it actually offends God. So when it comes to weak and strong believers, a couple commonalities. Number one, both are accepted by God. They're both accepted. The person that has different convictions than you is still accepted by God on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. Number two, both have a responsibility to each other. Both should love one another, care for one another, not put stumbling blocks in front of the other and not cast dispersions on each other. And then number three, God desires harmony between them. Like that is ultimately what must happen between two different believers on, you know, different conviction areas. And, and then, so let's go back to this roadmap here. When it comes to weak believers and strong believers, I want to highlight something. Paul confronts both. Here's a mistake churches make. Listen up, listen up. Lean in moment. Most of the time, what Christian leaders do is cater to the weakest common denominator believer. This is how you get legalistic Christians and legalistic churches. We've got to stop catering to the lowest common denominator on disputable matters. Because someone's going to have a conviction about playing cards. Oh, well now, okay, so for the sake of Joe, who hates cards because he believes it's sinful because he was saved from gambling. Well, now that's sinful. Oh, and then Sister Mary over here, she had a conviction about short dresses. So short dresses are sin. Oh, and then Paul over here, he, he was saved from 
um, an overuse of tobacco, so now smoking is sin. And over here, this guy used to play the craps table, so now it's dice are a sin. And before you know it, the church is all rules and no life. Don't placate. If you're a Christian pastor, if you're a small group leader, if you're a Christian leader, listen to me carefully. Do not placate the weak believers. you got to challenge both the weak and the strong, which is exactly what Paul does here in Romans chapter 14. So let's go back to this text. Um, not this text. Let's go back to this table where it comes to the weak believers who have convictions over non-essentials and it's a personal issue. Your personal preference might not be biblical law. Check it. Check it. Might just be a personal preference. And then to you strong believers who have liberty, you have no problem, you have the right, you can make the right biblical argument about your issue. Okay, your freedom may have consequences in other people's lives that you don't see. Your freedom might hurt someone else's conscience, someone else's life. And that is harmful. Your Christian brother's connection to you and to Christ is more important than your freedom. Okay? Four simple rules. Number one, if it hurts me, don't do it. Well, that's all sin, right? Sin hurts. Sin costs us. Sin kills but here's simple rule number two. If it hurts my brother or sister, don't do it, right? If somebody else is going to get hurt by me doing this in front of them, then I don't need to do it in front of them. Third, if there's a question or a doubt about their conviction, don't do it. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm going to be speaking honestly in here. I also still struggle with this. Sometimes I'm not sure about all the people's convictions in my church and I say something and it's off color and I don't realize that what I said kind of offended them. And I still navigate through that all the time. It's very difficult. And the larger the church gets, the more difficult it becomes because all kinds of different people come to your church. Then number four, if there's agreement, uh, community and Bible, which means that both the community says this is acceptable and the Bible says this is acceptable, do it. So when it comes to alcohol consumption, there are a lot of churches that have no problem drinking alcohol at the Lord's table because that's how you're, you know, that's how it usually was in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament times. And probably for a preponderance of Christian history, it was, it was not grape juice, it was actually wine. And, you know, where there's agreement in the community and the Bible, do it. But if the community has some problems with that, then don't do it. It's not that big of a deal. And here's a great quote from Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Like love one another. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who fought the Nazis um, and, and, and taught in the underground seminary. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me. That is in my own image. Rather, in his very freedom from me, God made this person in his image. I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. And that is brilliant. That is brilliant. In other words, God made that person different than me on purpose because God is free from my opinion on how that person should be made. Therefore, let them remain in the hand of God. Let's talk about why it matters. Here's why it matters. Because Christians do not just live among each other. We affect each other. Your Christian faith affects your brother and sister in Christ. And how you practice your faith affects them. And you've got to be careful that you're not doing things that might hurt another believer. Even if, even if they have this very shallow level of conviction about really debatable issues. So am I regarding my brother and sister in regards to my personal liberty? And then number two, our harmony in the church is a testimony to those outside the church. In other words, if you can stick it out and live together and learn together and love one another and be together in spite of the petty differences that you have and may always have, can you be a witness to your world in showing love for people who are different than you, who may 
raise their kids differently than you or educate your kids different their kids differently than you or vote differently than you or you know have a different twitter feed than you right can we can we be okay with that i thank god for the people in my life that are different than me they challenge me they challenge me to be a different kind of person even in debatable matters i i got people who think differently about money than me that uh on debatable issues uh that think differently about um, alcohol than me, uh, that think differently about secular, you know, environments than me. And, and in some ways they have loosened me up and in some ways they have guarded me and it's good. Can I tell you, it's good to be challenged in the debate of matters. It's good to be challenged because nothing is worse. I think in the Christian life than unhealthy legalism an unhealthy attachment to do, 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 don't, don't, don't God is happy. That is a unhealthy way to live. Back to, I think, what is the most important verse. We didn't even address it very closely. I will now in Romans 14, verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now look what he's saying. Eating and drinking, that's stuff that's outside of you. But righteousness, peace, and joy, that's stuff that God wants to develop inside of you through the Holy Spirit. In other words, your internal transformation is infinitely more important than your external habits. Your internal transformation is infinitely more important. God giving you peace, joy, righteousness inside you, way more important than externalities being adjusted outside of you. Anyone can change their outward appearance. And I want to say to the weak faith brothers and sisters, just, just another challenge to you guys. Please remember, who majored on minors when Jesus walked the earth? The Pharisees, the Pharisees majored on minors. They, they majored on uh, the externalities. They majored on uh, one of the verses Jesus says in Matthew 23, he says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. In other words, they had these little, these little mesh things that they would put over their cups to make sure that a gnat wouldn't get in the drink, but then they would go and swallow a camel. And so he's basically saying you major on minors and then you, you miss the major. So, so that's just a, a warning to a lot of the Christians out there who love to look down. Because again, we cater. The church tends to cater to the lowest common denominator, weak, weak believer. And, and we cater to them. We create this legalistic environment that nobody wants to be a part of because everyone around us is saved from a different space. And what we need is more grace. We need to be nudges, not judges, and see each other grow closer to Jesus. Like the video, share the video, subscribe. I love it. Thank God for being here with you. I'm so happy that you were here. I appreciate and love all your support. And if you do support the channel, a big hearty thanks to you guys. 10 Questions with Tim will be back on the first of the month. Make sure you send your questions in at askatimhatchlive.com. And I look forward to being back with you on the deep end on Tuesday night. God bless you.